This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Bradley Trevor Grieve, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you, Cheryl. Lovely to see you again. And I think it's very important for the listeners to acknowledge this, that I have, in fact, cut my own hair. Yeah. So I've, I've made an effort in COVID lockdown. And uh, so for those who can't see it, but it's very dodgy haircut. And uh, that's why I look the way that I do. Yeah. But it's okay. for you, Cheryl. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to look my best. I have failed and I apologize. No, that's fine. Um, it's, we don't have, um, this is a listening um, podcast only. So, you know, it, it really is just for me and I appreciate it's it a, and thank you very much. It's a much. blessing then really, isn't it? For everybody? <laughs> it is. Hey, I want to <laughs> say that we've known each other for some years. Um, right. I was at Random House when the um, Blue Day book came out. And also I visited LA once and you took me to Huntington Gardens and we had the most beautiful day. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you for being there at the, at the launch of my career. Obviously, very happy memory from my days at Random House. Jane Polferman, you know, backed me from the beginning and uh, we're still great friends, even though she's a different publishing house now, but we're still great friends. And yeah, I think as an expat, as a, as a Tasmanian in romantic exile, it's always a pleasure to show some of the hidden treasures to Aussie friends and visitors. And yeah, Huntington Gardens, for those who don't know, it's, it's, it's the old Huntington estate uh, in, in Pasadena. Well, San Marino, but it's really Pasadena. But... It has the Huntington Library and uh, you can see some of the most extraordinary first editions and uh, the Gutenberg Bible, for example, early works of many esteemed authors, the original Audubon prints and book. I mean, it's beautiful. Plus some of the most exquisite private gardens in the world. So happy to be your tour guide. Yeah, it was it was a it was a fabulous day. Now we're not here to talk about travel and well because none of us are doing it at the moment. So Bradley's um, in LA and we're doing this via Zoom. I'm in Sydney, Australia, but we are here to talk about uh, Sam Bloom, the new book, Heartache and mm-hmm. Birdsong, and also too, I want to know a little bit about your life as well. So firstly, I'm going to introduce you uh, for those that don't know you. Bradley Trevor Grieve is now a household name worldwide since writing the Blue Day book. How many copies sold? Do you remember? Of that particular book, I don't. Um, I know we hit 30 million some time ago uh, for all my books. And at that point, I've stopped counting everything. I think, yeah. I think I've reached the point in my career where I no longer keep score. There you go. So we'll say millions. He's written 24 books, which have been translated into 29 different languages and have sold in 115 different countries, several of which have appeared in the New York Times bestseller list. His work has won multiple awards and he was born in Tasmania. He now lives in California, as we just said. And we're here to talk about the latest book, Sam Bloom, Heartache and Birdsong, which is the 
a follow-up to the international bestseller Penguin Bloom, which is why we met in LA back then, which is now being made as a film starring Naomi Watts. In 2004, Bradley was awarded the Order of Australia for his significant service to literature and wildlife conservation. I can continue with all his accomplishments, but I think we'll stop right there and I'm going to... Not much of a hairdresser, I think. No, not much of a hairdresser, but you've produced a beautiful uh, little baby who we call the She-Cub. How old is she now? She is, well, she turned 19 months two days ago. And uh, she is just, you know, this this little radiant drop of furious sunshine. She's freakishly strong. She moves around the the, the household furniture. And uh, I don't know if you know this, we're in the middle of a fire. We are about four kilometers from the southwestern edge of what is known as the Bobcat Fire, which is just over 105,000 acres ablaze. And so the smoke here is horrendous and it's still Mm. late summer so it's about 30 degrees celsius which is a pleasant drop-off because it was actually 50 degrees celsius uh only two weeks ago uh three days in a row and um anyway so we're housebound so not only have we been in lockdown for covid since february so the months are adding up but in the fire so but i guess what i'm getting to point is the little one can't go outside and uh it's driving her crazy and she has inherited her father's love of wildlife and wild places. So she is displaying her uh, distress by destroying the house uh, and moving the furniture. And she's so strong. She can do a chin up at, at 19 <laughs> months. She can, so she's very powerful. I love her. She's adorable. Yeah. And she bites. Yeah. And she bites. But I'm used to that from my yeah. life. So uh, monkeys and stuff are biting <laughs> me all the time. Other people get distressed by it. But for me, it's just business as usual. Yeah, that's right. Go with the flow. I want to know, firstly, we'll go back to how you met the Blooms and how this mm-hmm. collaboration came apart. Do you want to start with that? Sure. So I met Cameron Bloom. Uh, who's a wonderfully gifted Australian photographer um, at a concert, wildlife conservation fundraiser at Taronga Zoo, where I've been a, a governor since you know, 2000. I don't remember actually which year it was, but met him, very lovely fellow. Uh, we connected via social media. Back in those days, I was still living mostly in Tasmania, so I would come back and forth for conservation business and publishing business. And uh, we stayed in touch. When his wife, Sam, suffered a tragic accident while on holiday in Thailand. So you knew them prior to the accident? Ten years. Yeah, well, okay. I'd known them. I I wouldn't say we were close friends, but we were friends. And so when I heard, and I don't know where I was, I think, oh, 2013, I guess I would have been in America because I came out here initially Mm -hmm. um, as a creative consultant, uh, executive consultant in residence for Disney Imagineering who built all the roller coasters when I was taking a, a sabbatical year in 2009, 2010 after my dogs died. So I was here in Los Angeles. Well, I'm not in Los Angeles now, I should point out. I don't live in LA, I'm some hours north. But I was here in Southern California and happily ensconced with my beautiful wife. And I found out via social media, and then of course I I get the Australian papers online and confirmed it, that they had this terrible accident. And of course, in those days, it was hard to get to the bottom of the story because there's all this not, not misrepresented reporting, but it was confusing. No one was really saying the same thing. I found out though she'd been horribly injured and we all thought she was going to die. And then of course she ended up permanently paralyzed from the chest down. So that was absolutely devastating. But what do you say? Tell me what happened. They had three young boys and you have to remember that before they got married, before they had children, Sam and Cameron Bloom were avid adventure travelers. It was a great life passion. It was one of the things that united them as a couple when they first fell in love. Uh, in fact, the first test of their relationship was after they traveled all through much of Europe and the Middle East. And Cameron, who had photography assignments for a, a leading newspaper, needed to come home 
And Sam, who was a nurse, said, I'm not ready to come home. I love you, but I want to continue traveling. And so they separated uh, physically, not emotionally, in London. And she went on to become a private nurse for uh, some extraordinary people uh, in order to make more money to continue her adventure travel. So it's a big part of who they are. And so they stopped once the boys had arrived and they're young children. And as a relatively new father, I can appreciate this. It's very hard to do anything when you have an infant. We took the little one home to meet her Aussie grandparents at Christmas, speaking of horrific fires. And Mm -hmm. it was a real challenge to get from the United States to Northern Queensland via Sydney. It was not easy. So Mm -hmm. I can appreciate that. So finally the boys had come of age where they felt they could take them traveling. And they really wanted to go to either Egypt or Ethiopia, two of their favorite previous destinations. But unfortunately, with the Arab Spring, conditions had deteriorated. Neither of those destinations was, were a smart choice for a young family. So they, they chose the, quote, safe, close quote, choice of going to Thailand. Now, when they arrived in Phuket, they were very disappointed. Phuket is basically Thai version of the Gold Coast. Didn't feel like much of a cultural immersion. And so they decided to make their way up Um, the South China Sea and uh, the Gulf of Thailand to look for a little quiet place out of the way and they found one. Long story short, the very first morning of their real holiday, one of the boys found this exquisite observation deck, roughly two stories high, and they all went up to the the deck to have a look and get a lay of the land and work out what their family plan for adventures and relaxation would be. And in the process of just enjoying this beautiful tropical Asian in this bucolic paradise, uh, Sam, at some point, she believed, but she can't remember, must have leant against the safety rails. And unfortunately, dry rot had destroyed the anchor points and she tumbled six metres onto a, uh, a concrete surface and she was horribly injured, you know, shattered a skull, ruptured both lungs, um, countless other traumatic injuries to her body and most critically uh, shattered her spine at T6, T7, which is roughly in line with your bra strap or your chest if you don't wear a bra. So absolutely devastating. Everyone thought she was going to die. That's what actually happened. And, um, and Penguin Bloom, for those who haven't read it, charts the story of how she plunged into a, a deep, uh, an unfathomably deep depression after she finally had endured seven months of surgeries and rehabilitation at various hospitals around Asia, in Asia and Australia, and how it wasn't until the family uh, rescued an injured baby magpie that fell onto parking space by her mother's house that in caring for this little bird, she ended up being able to work through her own depression and be motivated to make more of life and became more physically independent and actually has gone on to become a champion athlete, uh, both a kayaker and uh, a surfer. She's now a two-time world champion adaptive surfer, which was originally her life passion was surfing. She was a very physical person, which makes the accident all the more devastating. And that's the thing about spinal cord injuries. The majority of the people who suffer them are those who are extraordinarily physical, often at the prime of their life. And that was certainly true for Sam, which made her recovery process uh, that much more difficult. Mm. Tell me a little bit about the bird. So it's a magpie called penguin, penguin Mm bloom. And talk to me about relationships between animals and humans, because I know that that features greatly in your life, as it does in mine. It does. It is. So... The, the, first of all, a nice, a, a nice piece of emotional symmetry was that the same sun 
who found the deck that led to Sam's accident was also the son who found and rescued the injured bird. So that was quite extraordinary, one of those things that where truth is stranger than fiction. Um, Penguin, uh, you know, small, uh, she's only a few weeks old, uh, female magpie. And there's a the, uh, massive Norfolk pine growing directly adjacent to Jan Bloom's house and uh, Sam's mother. And during this phase of Sam's, I guess we could call it recovery, she had no social life. She rejected all of the important people in her life. She rejected uh, any sort of psychological or psychotherapy counselling. She found it incredible. She had some bad experiences in hospital and she's recounted these to me in detail. And I don't blame her. I remember on her first meeting with the counsellor, the very first thing she was told was, you should really have a hysterectomy so that when you have your period, it's not a pointless mess. You know, it's just, it's just this, you know, I get it that it's brutal, brutal practical advice, but the point is it, it continues the theme that's so keenly felt by spinal cord injury patients I've spoken to, which is this loss of agency translates into a loss of personhood. And you're no longer a person, you're a thing, you're a patient, you're an object, you're something to be turned and pushed and fed and cleaned. And until finally you, you, you lose your sense of self, you, you lose your identity, you lose any sense of, of, of who you were, what you've achieved, and, and what you could yet achieve and look forward to. So the system of caring for people in these conditions are, are, are often counterproductive to and healing the body does not heal the mind or the soul and not, not being too fruity about it, but that's really the essence of it. So I, I don't blame her for rejecting counselling on the basis of some of her early experiences, well-intended, but absolutely devastating in their result. So she continued to push people away. Her closest friend, Bron, she went through nursing school with, they raised their kids together, they, they went on holidays together. And, and when she was injured, Bron flew over to Thailand to be with her by her bed. She came and visited her in a Royal North Shore Hospital when she was doing rehab. She pushed everybody away because she felt that looking at these people, they became emblematic of the life that was stolen from her, of who she would have been, was, but no longer will ever be. And that pain isolated her further, which I think made her recovery even more difficult. You know, yes, the love of her husband, and Cameron's a real hero in this story, he's just, I, I describe him as a perpetual motion machine in board shorts. I mean, he's just constantly trying new things to try to mix things up. I remember he decided that the family should make their own honey, which is a remarkable decision considering that he's deathly allergic to bee stings. That's Cameron, you know, and you know what? When he did get the bees and they did harvest the honey and Sam helped spin the honey and put the labels on the bottles of their bung and honey, that's B-U-N-G-A-N, in case I'm pronouncing that wrong, bung and honey from Bungan Beach. And they made little surfboard wax out of the wax frames. She remembers that was one of the first happy moments of any activity that is a family. So Cameron's that kind of guy. But even so, you know, she felt she was no longer uh, a real wife, a real mother, you know, a real woman. A person and and so she pushed everybody away and she felt alone in a house she was the only person now in a wheelchair at least when she was in rehab she was with other people who could understand the pain that she was feeling now she's just this she felt this single sort of freak show on wheels amidst normal people and all the things that she used to do she couldn't do even the things she hated to do which you think you'd be glad to stop doing cleaning the house 
you know, mm-hmm. for example, running down to the shops to pick up uh, groceries. None of the things were, were possible anymore without help. So that was the state when the bird entered and, and she didn't care for the bird. I mean, she is an animal person, but she doesn't didn't want wild animals in the house. And, and see, she wasn't happy about it, but the, the boys prevailed and they, they got her to agree to have the bird in the house. And then, of course, the boys went off to school. Someone had to look after the bird. She stuck in the house. And the two things came together in a rather beautiful way. And her instincts as a mother, as a nurse, as a nurturer, as a, as a compassionate human being kicked in and she rediscovered who she was and invested that feeling into this little bird. And it was, and, and in return, the bird's recovery inspired her to dig deeper for her own recovery. But this is the kind of the moment, getting back to your early question of how it all came together. So at this time, there are two parallel stories. There's the story of Australian abroad suffering a terrible accident. And she's a beautiful young woman, which is the kind of story that makes all the glossies of the newspapers. And you think beautiful Aussie woman surfer, you know, spine crushed in, in Thai accident, you know, legal issues, hospital, you know, the hotel's been sued, you know, blah, 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 police were involved. There's that story in the newspapers at that time. At the same time, Cameron, who in an instant has become a full-time carer, a sole breadwinner, basically a single parent, he is overwhelmed with the tragedy and responsibility uh, that has befallen him. Never imagined this would ever happen. No one would ever want it. And so I think of these moments as art therapy. His only escape is to pick up his camera and look for moments of beauty in the tragedy. And he starts taking photos of Sam and the bird and the boys and the bird, the baby bird. And there's so much personality and so much joy in these tiny slivers of time that he captures with a lens. And so he puts those on Instagram and they become popular. I think there's like 50 or 60 or 70,000 followers, which for an Australian Instagram account is very significant. Oh, absolutely. And, and if you get to those sort of tens of thousands of followers, you start getting calls from publishers and that's what happened. So uh, Brigitte Doyle of ABC Books, which is part of HarperCollins, they contact him and they say, we would like to produce a book of your beautiful magpie photos. And, and he goes, oh, okay. And she said, you know, he, she says, we're thinking you could do it like the Blue Day book, which is my successful gift book, which is a juxtaposition of text and images, although that has a narrative about perspective and uh, beating Blue Days. Anyway, Cameron's not an idiot. He knows he's no writer. And he goes, well, I happen to know the Blue Day book guy. Why don't we get him to do it? So he contacts me uh, in the US and says, would you write this book? And I look at it and I say, no. (laughs) And I say, no, because, you know, I'm the world's highest selling humorist and I don't know where this goes. I'm not going to write a book about magpies. I'm not going to do a funny captions for a book of magpie photos. That's not a book, in my opinion. That's a collection of photographs. That's an art gallery uh, catalog. But I I knew about Sam's accident, and I said, I think that's probably where the story is, but I'm not interested in doing that either. Anyway, I'm glad that they persisted, Brigitte and Cameron asked me to reconsider, and all I promised was I'd I'd think about it for two weeks. And in that time, I came up with a list of questions and asked for a range of documents, police reports from Thailand, embassy letters from Thailand, hospital reports from Thailand and Australia. I looked at the timelines. And that was the moment where I realized, I read Sam's diary, and that was the moment that I realized 
that the point where they adopted Penguin and Sam began to you know, care for Penguin was the point that she started to work through her depression and her life trajectory changed. And I said, that's the story. It's mm-hmm. not one or the other, it's both. And I believe that there is a way to write this where this injured bird becomes the vessel for the broken woman. And that's where Penguin Bloom was born. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. And for the broken family, I mean, those yeah. photographs are just beautiful. I mean, you could they not are. look at those photographs and not shed a tear. Just the relationship, oh. the intimacy, he captured every just beautiful, stunning moments of everyday life, you know. Well, he did, and that's, and that's my point. And that's really Sam Bloom, in a nutshell, as a book, Sam Bloom, Heart Ake and Song. It's that there is still beauty in tragedy. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, and it, there's, I, I think that the reason the books have been successful and people love them is because there's a, a very Australian-ness to them, a very Australian honesty to mm-hmm. them. And there's this refusal to fit into a comfortable space and say this terrible thing happened to me, but I'm better for it, or I'm okay with it, or I've learned to live with it, and which is an absolute lie uh, for mm-hmm. most people. Sam isn't like that. She she calls a spade a spade. You know, one more likely she calls a spade a bloody shovel. And there's a certain beauty to that, and that's what attracted me to her as a subject, because I knew that she wouldn't try to censor herself or say things to make me or the readers feel more comfortable. I knew she would come at it at a very heartfelt and a very visceral level, and she has. Mm -hmm. And that's what's different about her as a subject of the book, particularly as someone who suffered a great tragedy and moved on with her life. Yes, there's a certain overcoming adversity thing, but but it's not that Disney, and I say this as someone who's met his wife through Disney, so I have a great love for the mouse. It's not that saccharine notion of, of, oh, everything's okay now. There is no happy ending, but people are still happy. And that's, that's the beauty and the honesty of, of, of these people and, as a result, the book's about them. How did you approach it? After you decided to do it, did you and Sam have many conversations? How did you approach oh, that? So we spoke virtually every... I mean, we've, we've been on, you know, the, the various mediums, you know, Skype, mm-hmm. FaceTime, now Zoom... We think we did about 2,000 hours of interviews in the first year. Wow. Uh, I, I've lost track of how many thousands of hours we've done now. I interviewed every family member in detail. Initially, it took a while for Sam to warm to me. She wasn't ready to discuss these things. So I spoke to Karen initially for some weeks before Sam gradually got more involved, and then it was Sam the whole time. But I also spoke to the boys. 
And um, it actually was very difficult. And certainly for me, I'm sure there are authors out there, well, spe specifically journalists who, who are much more comfortable with this format. It's not for me. I've never done this before. So I had to learn from, from, the, from scratch, really. So I ended up actually speaking to a friend of mine who was a, uh, a police detective in Chicago. And I started asking him, how do you get the truth from victims of crimes who have suffered great trauma? How do you cut through the emotional veneer and actually get to what really happened? Because what I found was that no one lied to me ever, but everybody had a different version of the truth. Each but of that's the three life, boys. isn't it? It is, it is. But it's tough for an author who's trying to find... Yeah a definitive narrative thread and say, this is what happened. And so what I ended up doing is, and, you know, I, I learned some things from my friend, the police detective, but what I ended up doing was making the decision with the first book, even though Sam is the subject, I made the decision that Cameron's point of view would be the point of view. And so the first book is Cameron's voice. And that was one of the reasons I wanted after a two year break to write the second book, because I wanted to have Sam's voice. And by now, I knew so much more about them. And also Sam was so comfortable with me. She'd tell me absolutely everything. She'd tell me things she wouldn't even tell members of her family and her best friends. So now I had all this information. I had this insight and I had Sam's confidence. We could do that. And, we, and so the second book is entirely Sam's point of view, which means if you read both books back to back, if you binge read, is that even a thing? It should be. Then you'll see that occasionally there are slightly different takes on similar passages of time about where they were, what they ate, what they did, where they, what they saw, because I just said, obviously, I believe both of you, but the first book, whatever Cameron says happened, happened. And in the second book, it's whatever Sam's point of view, that's the truth. But and also too, you had also time in between those. So the first book would have been more raw, if you like, than the second book. I, no. They're both still it's, beautiful it's, stories. Well, it's, it's, they're, I guess it depends how you define raw. If you, if you mean unfinished and gaps, then yes, I'm sure that's true for the first book. But if you mean emotionally vulnerable, then I would say no. I would say the second book was even harder to write. And you look about tears and emotion from those photographs. I mean, God, I, don't, I think we had, I don't know, 30,000, 40,000 images for the first book to get down to the 120 or whatever we used. It took three months uh, just on its own, just for me to edit through the photographs to work out what I was going to use. But as my wife will tell you, I wept every day for 12 months writing Penguin Blue mm. and these long conversations because I just love Sam and Cameron and the boys so much. And to think of the pain they've been through and the suffering uh, that's been brought to bear in their household, it's unbearable. You know, and then, of course, you've got to be stoic. You know, you always try to structure interview conversations so that you start somewhere in a happy place and then you get to the nitty-gritty and then you go deeper, deeper. To, it's incredibly painful. And mm -hmm. then you try to pull out and end on a positive note so you can end with a smile and you know, try to give them some happy homework. You know, think about this. What did you eat on your first day? Where did you go here? Where did you, you know, first kiss? Nice stuff for her to think about to try to put a Band-Aid over some of those raw feelings. But then when it's over, I know that's just a device to manage the pain. And I just feel terrible for having to take it back to those dark places. Now, she says she loved it. She found it incredibly cathartic. Um, she says it was so much better than her counselling, but considering how awful her counselling was, that, that's not much of a compliment. So, you know, it was a difficult process. And we did this for years. But you're right. By the time we come now, now we're in 2020, 
we know each other so well. And in that time, remember she suffered minor brain damage. So she has some memory issues. So piecemeal, little tiny pieces coming together and this sort of floating jigsaw of events. And my job is to not just find them, but to put them together. And by the time we get to 2020, now I have all these other stories that I felt were amazing and needed to be told. And that's the basis of the second book, which is really, once again, an innovative biography, but specifically structured in a way to address her philosophy towards living with pain. Mm. Tell me about the film deal. Well, uh, that was just a, uh, a masterclass in hubris and ineptitude on my part. I mean, the book was beautiful. And obviously I mentioned it's excruciating to write, mm. but we have wonderful publisher, Bridget Doyle at ABC Books. She just gave us whatever we wanted. We you love know, her. Oh, she's amazing. She's she an is. author's dream. I mean, yeah. you know, I don't want young authors to listen to me and think, oh, everybody gets this deal. We, we were lucky. We earned a long career. We've earned the right for people to take a gamble on us and uh, at this point in my career. And she did. You know, how big is the book? What stock? How, you know, all everything. Whatever you need will make it happen. And that's why the book is a, a triumph. It's so beautiful at every level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> God, so I should, this is a silly story, but in the, in, in the epigraph of Hegman Bloom is a beautiful poem by Eduardo Galliano. And we decided I wanted that. We needed that as the epigraph for the book. Well, bugger me, Eduardo died six months before, which is huh. devastating. So now I'm in, in, in conversations with his estate representatives and his agent in New York, and it's just taking months and months and months. And every other publisher in the world would say, forget it, get something else. But Virginia Doyle said, not a problem, we'll wait. And eventually, once they'd worked out everything with his deceased estate, we, we got the rights, and now we have it. It's in the book. At a lot. And, and Cameron was the one who found that poem. I think someone read it at a wedding and he fell in love with it and he told me about it. Uh, but that's who Brigitte Doyle is. So if you can do a, a book with Brigitte Doyle, do it because she's um, amazing. So as soon as it was announced that I was writing the book and the book was well underway, and you know me, um, I'm not someone who gives a lot of interviews, so I never tell you what I'm working on. So, uh, But that was enough to get people excited and we started getting queries about making the film, but what we call fringe weasels, not real producers, but, you know, people just chances, hoping to get the rights cheaply and quickly and then sell it on to somebody bigger. And I've made a number of television programs since I lived in the US, so I'm not completely ignorant of such things, but I'm, nor am I some sort of Hollywood powerhouse either. So I just said to Cameron, we will have, they were very excited about the possibility, and I said, no, we will have no conversation with anybody about the movie until the book is finished, period. And we stuck to that, which I think people found very annoying, but to hell with them. So the book's done, and then we start sending it out. But the important conversation was that Cameron and Sam and I, we sat down and I said, we need to decide who we want to play you, Sam. That's the most important decision. We can't give that choice to somebody else. Let's build it around that. And we all agreed that Naomi Watts. I think she's perfect. perfect. She is. Thank you. She's she's athletic. She's an emotional athlete. She's someone capable of the incredible range of both an elite sports person and uh, someone who suffers from a devastating spine injury. She's a mother. She She is is. authentic. She's not all made up and glammed up like, you know, a lot of Hollywood actresses. So we made the decision that we would work towards uh, Naomi Watts being the star, which is a bold thing to say. And then I (laughs) said, well, I'm in Hollywood. I will make that connection. 
Yeah, oh, she's Australian too, so you've got <laughs> you've got a foot in the door, right? <laughs> Ish. So I so I head out. Now I have a very good agent here for my TV stuff that represents a lot of stars, and they love the book. And they said, "Fine." They said, "Who do you want to play?" Sam. I said, "Naomi Watts." I said, "Fine." So we go through all the official channels and 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 crickets. I mean, because there's all these gatekeepers between us and Naomi Watts, and the gatekeepers all the way to her personal assistant. So the junior agent to the senior agent to the manager to the uh, personal I mean and whatever along the way there didn't even get the book to her that's how crazy it is here and so I, I spent about 11 months trying to make this happen and finally I remembered that we had a mutual friend in a, a wonderful Aussie woman called Emma Cooper now Emma Cooper again it all comes back to Taronga Zoo you see the zoo mafia is how you get things done the former CEO of the Zoological Parks Board of New South Wales and of Taronga Zoo and Western Plains Zoo in Dubbo is Guy Cooper. And Guy Cooper and I are obviously very close because we've been doing I met him once with you. There you go. So yeah. we go way we go way back. Yeah. So Emma, his daughter, has been in film for a long, long time and best friends with, with Naomi Watts. In fact, Naomi Watts was the matron of honor at her wedding. She's out here. Her husband, Harry Cripps, is working on a, a film for DreamWorks. And so I called her up and I said, Em, let's go to coffee. She came out and I was, me being very blunt like I am, I don't fish around. I said, look, I'm using you to get to Naomi Watts, written this beautiful book. You've got plenty of offers to be a movie, but we want Naomi to star. Could you please read it? If you like it, could you please pass it on to Naomi? And we'll see what happens. And she was very gracious and agreed to do that. Well, the next day I get the call from Emma and she said she loved the book. She sent it to Naomi already. Naomi read it immediately. She loved it. And not only does she want to play Sam Bloom, she wants to co-produce the movie. And so just like that, after 11 months of complete and utter failure, it was going gangbusters. The next thing you know, Reese Witherspoon wants to do it. Bruno Papandrea comes on. And now we have a very substantial and legitimate Hollywood movie. And it's sort of got a life of its own. So I'm not saying that's the conventional path to get a movie. I'm not saying you should get into wildlife conservation in order to become a movie producer. But that's what worked for me. All right, we've got to finish up there. I've got to tell you, you are so entertaining. I love chatting with you. A wonderful story. It really is um, the most beautiful book. And it is. It's, I love the title, Heartache and Birdsong. But the beauty is there as well, isn't it? You know, it's, it it's one of those books that you really need to read and then just hold against you and give it a big hug, which is what I did. Thank you. Yeah, you really, you really got that story across. Anyway, congratulations, Bradley. Um, everything you do is just, I don't know, has meaning, is what I want to say. It really does. Uh, thank you. That means uh, a lot to me. And I, it's something I've been thinking about lately since I finished Heartache and Birdsong because it took everything I had to write mm -hmm. it, emotionally exhausted at the end of it. And I've reached a point in my career now, you know, as you say, some 20, 30 books in and 25 years of a career. And I'm, I'm not tired. You know, I'm still inspired. I'm still excited about things. And it's not that I've stopped caring. It's the opposite. I care so much now about things that are important to me. I never thought I'd be lucky enough to get married and have a family. And now I've been blessed with both. I care so much about my time that I'm not going to do a project if it doesn't contain a piece of my soul. Mm. Simple as that. So I don't have another book on, the, on, on my desk for the first time. I don't, I'm not working on anything. There are two or three books I'd like to write. Um, there's a biography I'd like to write, but I need the blessing of, of, of the subject, which I don't have. There's an extraordinary story in Australia I'd like to write, but that particular person has decided to write it themselves and I wish them all the best. 
And I'd love to write a third book about Sam Bloom when she learns to walk again, if she's so fortunate to, to benefit from some of the work that the book supports with Spinal Cure Australia. But until that happens, I want to spend time with my family and I want to spend time in the forest with the, with the great beasts uh, that, I, that I'm passionate about all my life. But that's, that's the thing. If I don't care about it deeply, I'm not going to do it. And the lovely thing about Sam Bloom, Heartache and Birdsong is you feel that. In, in every page. And I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of that. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity to do it. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Cheers, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.